perhaps you uh, saw the end of Bear Stearns and thought, huh, why work for somebody else? Not going to say that wasn't a part of it. Uh, I was long gone from Bear when that decision had happened. But yeah, I, you know, after 14 years of investment banking, decide I wanted to do something for myself. Right. Because the boat beneath you could sink at any moment. Uh, yeah, absolutely. No Yay, that's, that's metaphors for sure. And, and it did. <laughs> it did. I'm fascinated by the idea, though, because this is essentially it's got it's, it's a little bit of Soho House, a little bit of WeWork, a little bit of Waterworld, you know, kind of preparing for the apocalypse and recognizing that people can still uh, wallow in luxury while the world floods. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for getting that reference. I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. I may have to go back and watch that. I haven't watched it in a while. It's underrated. I got to say, it's got, it's got one of those reps that it doesn't deserve, kind of like uh, Heaven's Gate and a bunch of other ones, Ishtar. Yeah. You know, the kind of movies that people love to dump on that are actually a little better than people give them credit for. Yeah. So, Interesting uh, enough, there's, a, there's another movie that really captures what we're doing, uh, and it's on Netflix. It's called Rose Island. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'm not, but I want to find out all about it. Uh, it's a real real world story. This guy back in the 1960s, he was an engineer and he just was frustrated that the Italian government just controlled him. So he found basically an, an oil defunct oil barge or an oil platform outside of territorial waters in Italy, basically just turned it into a party spot. What he didn't realize is that when you're outside of uh, territorial waters, you are no longer part of Italy and after a while of Italy complaining, the government just bombed his barge. Um, <laughs> but it's a great movie. Interesting. I'm fascinated by this idea in terms of taking an established business model that is succeeding all over the world, but then taking it on the water. I mean, when you have an idea like that, where do you start? Where do you start in terms of acquiring inventory to make this happen? It's not just a floating boat. It's four boats that connect to perform this kind of oil derrick. There's <laughs> a lot more fun going on. Yeah. I mean, you know, for us, it was a little bit of an iterative process. You know, my co-founder, Natalie Pava, um, her and I run a, uh, a venue in New York city called custom house. And oh, sure, yeah. That, yeah. So that initially started as a event space. And then we added in co-working into that. We literally opened up right before COVID started. We were about to add in um, the private membership club aspect of it. And then COVID hit. Um, it's a beautiful space in meatpacking. We never really got to get that place fully going the way we wanted to. But we did pretty well during COVID. Um, it's a long story. You would think we did horribly. But we partnered with New York City um, to make face shields for the hospitals. Long story short, we ended up becoming the largest manufacturer of face shields in the Northeast U.S., um, really? having never made a single shield before in our lives. We made 1.7 million shields in five months. Uh, it was a massive, massive project. If you want to talk about like startup execution, it was that on steroids. So it was like a five month project. By the end of that year, by uh, October of 2020, we wound down that project and we went on to open up our second location of Custom House in a city and state that was a little bit more amenable to social events during COVID. And we were focused on the business. So we came down to Miami, which was always intended to be our second location anyways. But and you had a yeah, really different governor in place for that one. Super different government, <laughs> governor, uh, mayor, everything, right? And we came down uh, to do a pop-up. And uh, our goal was to do a five-month pop-up. Uh, we ended up taking over the Faina Hotel Bazaar, uh, which is a building across the street from the famous Faina Hotel it's kind of like the pinnacle of luxury down here in Miami. And we took over that rooftop and we ran that business, you know, rooftop event space and private members club, but no co-working for five months. And it was going so well, we ended up extending and we did it for 10 months, actually. So most of 2021, we did that. We were really there trying to get our feet wet and figuring out, well, where are we going to have our permanent location? And we were still thinking on land. Right. Our goal was to build something that was a hybrid halfway between Soho House and WeWork and does a little bit of both. We were checking out a variety of neighborhoods down in Miami. Nothing really was settling in for us. Stepping back about six months, I had read about this boat called the Ark Up. 
So I've always had a personal attraction towards anything that's electric, whether it's a Tesla, but specifically solar electric boats. And I knew that this sea change was going to come at some point. <laughs> sea change. Yeah. For like five Guys, if you're listening, get ready for a bunch of water related <laughs> puns. Yeah. Come on board if you haven't yet. Um, <laughs> the if, water's uh, fine. <laughs> so, you know, there used to be a company called uh, Silent Yachts, you know, fully solar electric boats. And I would always joke around and say, Natalie, we should put a private members club on this solar yacht. And she would literally laugh me out of the room and say, this is crazy. Stop talking about it. Isn't that how all the great ideas start by someone laughing you out of the room? And then you're like, yeah, wait a minute. Yeah. Basically, right. <laughs> and, you know, well done, Natalie. Me, Look what you did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A friend of mine sent me a link to this one crazy solar electric boat called the Arca, which happened to be in Miami. And I looked at it and I was like, that's not a boat. That's like a floating glass cube on water, or what they call a livable yacht, in effect, a mansion on water that moves. And I showed it to her and literally like laughing at me, immediately turned to jaw dropped. Oh my God, this is a total game changer. This is something that's so marketable. So we looked to see if we could convert the money that we made from the face shields manufacturing project into purchasing that boat. Because once we would have done that, we would have owned the asset and we wouldn't have a rent going forward. Uh, we wouldn't have real estate taxes going forward. And that would have been, you know, magical for us. Unfortunately, we learned that that vessel is not commercially rated and therefore you can only have 12 people on it at any given time above and beyond the owners. So it wouldn't have worked. So we went to the manufacturer and we said, are you guys going to make any more that are commercially registered and can have more capacity? They said, no, nah, actually, we're not going to. We're going to start making smaller versions of that. That's kind of a production line. Uh, we can whip out, you know, one to two a month. And they're going to be 40 feet instead of 75 feet long. I said, okay, well, that's probably we too have four. <laughs> exactly, right? So... Sorry to jump the gun there, but I kind of saw where you were going. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> the original boat is 4,400 square feet. These smaller ones are going to be about 2,000, including all the outdoor decks and everything. And that's just too small for a club. So we said, well, what happens if you get two or even four of these and put them together? And when we kind of like mapped it out and looked at it on paper, we realized that what you also get besides just four boats together, is kind of like a naturally formed pool in the middle of them. And that was our next jaw drop moment. And we were like, oh my God, this is amazing. Can we make this happen? Uh, well, you've definitely whetted our appetites. And uh, speaking, oh, yeah. speaking of jaw drop moments, you are listening to the successfully funded podcast brought to you by KiwiTech, a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. Now, before we get started with our discussion of Arc House, there's a brief disclaimer I'd like to read. These are the greatest hits. KiwiTech is not acting as a broker, dealer, or investment advisor, and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does KiwiTech provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities. Information contained herein should be viewed for entertainment purposes only. KiwiTech does not verify or assure that information provided by any issuer offering its securities is accurate or complete, or that the valuation of such securities is appropriate. Investing in securities, particularly in securities issued by startup companies, involves substantial risk, and investors should be able to bear the loss of their entire investment. You can read the full disclaimer on our website, successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. Now, on with the festivities. We're here to talk about Arkhaus, that's A-R-K-H-A-U-S, the world's first floating members club. It's positioned to redefine the members club of yesteryear, but it connects futuristic solar electric yachts to anchor an exciting new vision where community, innovation, and fun collide. Interesting to use the word collide when you're talking about boats. <laughs> Don't take it literally, Doug. I know, exactly. Um, no icebergs in Miami, though, anyway. Anyway, I'm very glad to uh, talk with the founder and CEO, Sam Perovi. Sam, welcome to the broadcast. 
Good to meet you. Thank you for having me on. This is uh, kind of exciting. And just a quick little note on KiwiTech. I'm familiar with KiwiTech from before. I've met some of the team in New York City. Great people. So I'm glad to find out that this podcast is part of the KiwiTech community because I'm a big fan of it. Terrific. Yeah, we've definitely gone to a more guest-based format. We really want to get a network of knowledge going. Basically, there are people who are just starting out, testing the waters. <laughs> waters. Oh, man. And, We're going to ride the wave all day. Exactly. And then there are companies, the more established companies who have reached a certain stage that we funder, and we're talking with Sam about what's worked, what hasn't, what the plans are, um, where the funding might go, and uh, how this might expand to seaside communities all over the world, I'm assuming, because it takes a very specific business plan. It's a pretty tangible pitch, if ever there were one. Just say, picture, we work, but there's also we party, we swim, we float, and the best thing is, too, that these boats, not only, I mean, they, they can be stationary if you need them, but you can also charter them and take off for a cruise. Yeah, that's right. Our view is come on board and do you do you do what you want to do. So we don't think people are going to, you know, be laptopping it up, but more business meetings and a little bit more of a social community. But yeah, I'd love, I can't wait to talk about all the nuts and bolts on the modularity and the flexibility we have, because it is some of the things we can do are just mind blowing. Yeah, if you want to install the standard networking practice, you can put a driving range in the bow or something, or at least a putt-putt course, because so much work gets done, you know, on the links. There it is. You've founded a lot of startups in your life. This is, which, which iteration is this for you? What number? You could really think of this as number four, but this is really a pivot or an expansion of number three, if that helps. Okay. So when you... Dial back when you grew up, you grew up in California, went to UCLA, and then came to New York? Yeah, that's right. I, uh, I ended up on Wall Street two weeks after I graduated college and um, spent 14 years there. Where do you think, when you, when you grow up in California, how are you raised to think as a person who feels really confident in creating new things? The funny thing is, I don't think my, my upbringing had anything to do with it. Uh, this is I grew more up, rebellion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I grew up being told I need to be a doctor, um, Persian background. Uh, so, you know, you're a doctor or you're an engineer or you're nothing. So I went to college oh, wow. to yeah. be a doctor. And my sister, luckily, was two years ahead of me. Uh, she was already in med school. And she kept telling me, Sam, I know you. You do not want to be a doctor. Trust me. I know you love the medicine, but you're going to be bored out of your mind. And I was doing an internship at UCLA called the UCLA Santa Monica Care Extender Program. Exceptionally hard to get into, considered one of the top internships in the country. I got in and I was immediately bored out of my mind. And <laughs> the funny thing about that is I was- Older sisters, man. How often, how right can they be? It's, it's rare, right? Yeah. I was a certified EMT. So I was getting to do a lot more than everybody else. And everybody else was saying, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing ever. And I was bored out of my mind while I'm getting to do the cool stuff. So I knew there was a disconnect there. I decided to change course and say, all right, well, I'll go do an MBA MD and go into biotech. And I went to go get some experience after applying for a bunch of jobs and realizing nobody would take me because I was a science background. I miraculously swung for the fences and somehow got an investment banking job in New York City uh, at Bear Stearns. And which is not a small feat. I mean, they don't just take anybody. No. And Bear, when you look at the spectrum of investment banks in New York City, Goldman and Bear are on polar opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Goldman, there's a lot of pedigree. Where did you come from? What school did you go to? Who do you know? Who's your dad? Uh, what can he do for us? And Bear, <laughs> Bear is the grinder, right? You come yeah. in, if you don't produce within weeks and you don't perform, you get chewed up and spit out immediately. I think it's miraculous that I yeah. survived 14 years of investment banking, having gone through. So I spent about four or five years at Bear, and then um, I went to Royal Bank of Scotland, and I was there for about three, four years, ran my first startup, which was in the mortgage-backed securities space. That was unfortunately very ill-timed with the mortgage meltdown. That, so that was, was I was going to say, yeah. I mean, 2008 to 2010, and I uh, got back into finance until 2000. 2014. But when you really think about it, like, I don't think my upbringing had anything to do 
with having this entrepreneurial streak, I will tell you, I think I know very clearly what happened was I was never the kid who played politics and kissed butt. Um, and when I was on Wall Street, I saw people making an entire career out of it and doing well just by writing coattails of people and more or less, I mean, I hate to use the term, but, you know, kissing butt and just saying, this is my golden ticket. I had a little bit more of a rebellious streak where I said, if I'm going to be successful and really make a career, I'm going to do it because I'm smart and I work hard, not because I wrote somebody else's coattails. See, and, and that's why I'm getting that vibe from you, especially since, as you say, you were conditioned to go a certain way and you went your own way, which in effect is a, it's a very defining moment in your life when you decide to go out on your own in a way that other people might not have anticipated and it works out. That's a really strengthening watershed moment in a, in a young man's life. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you this, the straw that broke the camel's back for me after 14 years was I was working at a bank and I was on the sales and trading side and the lead salesperson on our team who famously known in the fixed income sales and trading space is one of the finest or one of the best salespeople. And this is in an era where there's exceptional amount of scrutiny on what we're doing. And she's like, you got to push the boundaries here on what you tell customers. I lie a relative amount of the time and I'm always worried that the cops are going to knock down my door and drag me off to jail. And then this was her next line. She said, but that's what I got to do to feed my family. And this person made somewhere between seven to eight million a year. Wow. And I, in my head said, that is the biggest crock of shit I've ever heard. You don't need to risk going to jail to make seven, eight million a year. And then say that's feeding your family. And that was the moment for me where I basically said, this is not the industry where I'm going to use my intelligence and my hard work to go build something. I'm going to break out on my own. And luckily it's, I had a side yeah. project that I used to do that, but that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And I left finance after 14 years. It's fascinating how quick the bubble takes hold, right? You just oh. get, become accustomed to a certain level of living and then all of a sudden you're a slave to maintain it. Yeah, exactly. In your addled head. You're like, uh, I can't make six million a year. Yeah. <laughs> you poor penurious soul getting by on six and a half mil. <laughs> so now when, what was your first startup coming out of the banking system when you uh, first drove out on your own? So the first startup was kind of in the middle of my banking career. I created a company called Protequity Group. And I thought to myself, well, every financial product can for the most part be hedged, but the largest financial asset that's out there in the world is the U.S. housing market. And the average homeowner can't actually hedge the value of their home. Now, multiple companies had tried to do this. They always did it as an insurance project, uh, insurance product. And that's where it failed because unlike every other type of insurance, which has its claims come in sporadically and spread out, housing all collapses at the same time, market by market. So you can't do it as insurance because it'll burn through your insurance reserves in a heartbeat. And when I saw that uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange had introduced these products called the Case-Shiller Indices on the 20 house, largest housing markets in the U.S., they created those indices, and then they also allowed you to trade puts and futures on them, puts, calls, and futures. Oh, wow. And I realized that you can basically take a put on a housing market, um, which effectively is insurance without it technically being insurance. And it's actually a lot safer. As we machines. learned when a bunch of puts and calls expired and That's left a right. lot of people, you know, jumping off of uh, their portfolios. Right. But the beauty of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is these are exchange traded. So, you know, the CME has not defaulted on a single trade in like 130 years of existence. Right. So it's it's the penicillin kind, not the uh, the crack cocaine kind of <laughs> um, financial product. And basically what I what I did effectively was I said, let me connect these puts to individual mortgages and effectively hedge the value of a homeowner, right? Now, but we went through a lot of iterations to work this product out. Unfortunately, while we got it all worked out, Bank of America was interested in it. The puts themselves never got liquidity. So we didn't have enough volume to purchase to be able to do this. Right, right, and right. Liquidity never happened because of the mortgage crisis. So what this product would have done is it could slowly over time stabilize housing markets right once you get 20 30 of an percent of an entire housing market to purchase an equity protected mortgage you stabilize those homeowners and you slowly start to stabilize 
the market. And what happens is when you look at it on a macro basis, once you get to a certain threshold, the market starts to self-stabilize and the product becomes so cheap that everybody starts to get it because there's no additional cost for it. And when there's no additional cost for it, the market buys it up and you stabilize the housing market. Now that would have been a five, 10 year view, but unfortunately we never got that liquidity that we needed. My goal is to build our current company exit in five years or so, go back and build that. Oh, okay. Interesting. I always consider that that's the company that's a true, true global game changer, but it requires being done with a lot of capital and done the right way. Well, when you think about this current company though, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if this took you over in a bit. I mean, it's such an interesting concept. It's unique as far as I've seen. I mean, depending upon how many boats you can buy, I mean, it seems like it could scale pretty readily and and uh, react to demand. And I think when you think about scaling the business, expanding the business, using the money you've you've already received from um, from your crowdfunding efforts, well, how has your viewpoint changed over the iterations of your life as a CEO that informs what your judgment is now as far as how to build this business going forward? You know, when, when you come out of the investment banking world, you're used to looking at things on a very big scale. Uh, you're used to looking at things in a way that you think they should go, right? And unfortunately, the real world isn't always like that, right? Building a business, you have to dig in and have a very nice long roadmap with a million contingencies and fallbacks on what you have to do if X, Y, and Z to build that business, right? In the investment banking world, you don't think about that. There's so much capital at disposal. You just say, well, if this falls short, then this money will kick in and we'll be great. It's not the way the real world works. So, you know, we've built in a lot of contingencies in our plan to make sure we can get to the end of our roadmap. And I think that's a function of having worked through an entrepreneurial process once in you know my mortgage uh, startup from 2008 through 2011. And then in this current startup, which really is one startup that has become three miraculously. And that, that, that I think I've learned to abide by my own roadmap to make sure that the company stays on track. So, and what is that roadmap in terms of, you say you have about a five-year plan what sort of road have you mapped out for it and how do you anticipate it might change? Yeah. So right now, you know, Arc House is going to launch in Miami next year, probably Q2 of next year. Most membership clubs around the world are actually single location or maybe have two units. The only global membership club is actually Soho House, which is owned by a parent company called Membership Collective Group, MCG. And we believe that what we are building can actually expand much more quickly than a land-based, real estate-based product. And why is that? So there's two reasons. One is we're not building physical structures. We are actually identifying a water site that can house this. Now, granted, on land, you don't have to build either. You can just go lease a space. But the second and the really important thing about what we are doing is that our primary governmental interface is not the city, county, or state. Although we do have to interface with them for business license, liquor license, a variety of other things. Sure, Our yeah. primary interface is actually the U.S. Coast Guard. I was going to say, I, I imagine that's you have to liaise with them pretty heavily, right? That's right. And the beauty of that is U.S. Coast Guard is the same no matter where you go in America. Every lake, river, intracoastal, ocean, U.S. Coast Guard dominates that space. There's some other players here and there, local police, et cetera. But the Coast Guard is who ultimately says, this is what you can and can't do. And once we get it fully nailed down, and by the way, I'd say we're about 80 to 90% of the way of fully nailing down what we're doing in Miami. Once we get it fully nailed down- In terms of down, compliance with the Coast Guard, you mean? Yeah, we actually have a legal memo that has been uh, developed in communication with the Coast Guard. They're aware of what we're doing. They've said, this is what you can, can't do. Here's where the gray areas are. Let's work together on that. Um, so we we know all of that. Now we're- going back on that last 10, 15, 20% to- so There's room to negotiate on this. This isn't like we are the government, yeah. you're doing this. There's actually some wiggle room. There is a little bit of wiggle room. You can apply for some permits if you say, well, this is close to X, Y, Z. And so what Coast Guard does is they view your project as a whole. On the level we're doing it, we don't go directly to Coast Guard Miami. Uh, our legal has gone to Coast Guard up in Washington, DC at the national level. 
And Coast Guard in DC basically says, XYZ is what you can, can't do. Here's the gray area. Let's discuss that. Let's, you can apply for a permit here. And once they establish that, anywhere we want to work throughout the country, the local Coast Guard really is just an enforcement arm of national, which means once we get this nailed down and we open up Miami, we can whip out clubs anywhere in the rest of the country. And all we got to do is two things. One is produce the vessels, which again, we are actually not doing. Our partner, ARCUP, is producing the vessels. And then we got to pre-sell the membership and work out everything else, like getting the liquor license, food and beverage partners, et cetera. And yeah, all it seems like the real work is just getting the template together, right? Once you get that down, it's easily replicatable. That's exactly right. And going into international countries, you know, the U.S. Coast Guard is probably more stringent than almost any other country's similar body. And the nice thing about that is all we have to do at that point is make sure that, again, the vessels qualify for that foreign country, you know, their version of Coast Guard, and that we're abiding by all other laws. So expanding in other countries is pretty quickly. So our roadmap is that once we get Miami open, we will actually open up seven locations or six more within five years. That's a very aggressive timeline. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Whereabouts you want to open them? New York will be number two. We know that. Mm -hmm. And then LA and San Francisco are three and four, although there's a heavy push coming out of San Diego partners. Mm -hmm. And then Paris, Istanbul, and Dubai are the three international locations we're looking at. We have a Dubai hospitality investment partner really interested because they have some beach clubs and they want to add this as a component to their beach clubs. And then we have a similar partner we're speaking with in Mexico, which could add locations in Cabo, San Lucas, and Tulum. That's our first five-year roadmap. The back five years, we believe there's another 25 to 30 locations globally that can support this. So when you really think about it, we need three things. You need a body of water that is appropriate for the vessels. You need a local economy where the economic capacity is capable of sustaining the membership and the price point roughly at what we believe it needs to be. And there needs to be enough of a tourism draw where that our members from Miami and New York and LA and San Fran and Paris would want to go to that other city, right? So you might get a very wealthy enclave in let's say Lake Como that would love to have an arc house. But is that somewhere we see a lot of our members going? Probably a few here and there, but not a ton, right? So I don't know if Lake Como is the greatest location right away. Well, wouldn't you might get some pushback from residents of Lake Como as well? I mean, I do you anticipate kind of a not in my backyard pushback to some of these places you want to go? And number two, what body of water is in Paris? <laughs> I'll answer your second second <laughs> question first. The Seine is in Paris, and it's big enough and broad enough. Is it really? It is. I wouldn't guess that. Even with the bridges, you could maneuver out there? Yeah. So the way we've envisioned Arc House is that it's four vessels put into a square configuration or a diamond configuration, but it doesn't have to be that. You can line four of them up in a long row. Uh, You can arch them out a little bit into the waterway. So in Paris, um, they actually have these boats. uh, They're called uh, Bateau Mouche. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of boats on the edges of the river. There's boats that obviously go up and down the river. Now, granted, that is very highly sought after water. Uh, In America, we call it submerged land. Um, (laughs) I don't know what we would call it in France. The correct body of water is there. It's really just a function of working through the local logistics. Now, again, we haven't worked through a lot of that internationally yet because we're focused on Miami and then letting Miami be the template for the rest of the U.S., a lot of things that we have learned about Coast Guard and where we can be, where we can't be, um, and how we have to set up and prepare our location. Um, a lot of that's our IP, so I can't really get into the details of that, but we have a Miami location now, which um, we have identified, we've verbally agreed on the price. We are in the process of locking up the location. I'm actually going out tomorrow to see the site and test depths and a variety of other things there. So we're very excited to see it. So if the Seine works, am I to infer that not every river in Europe can sustain this? I mean, the Thames, the the Amstel, the uh, the Niehaben, I think it's called, in uh, Copenhagen. Um, these are all 
beautiful spots. There's a lot of water in Stockholm in the center of the city there. I mean, would you contemplate trying to expand in a bunch of European capitals like that? Or is that just, are you, are you biting off way more than you could chew at this point? Well, I think what we're, you know, in our ideal location, what we're really looking for is a protected body of water. Um, and the primary reason for that is the vessels that we are working on obtaining now, these 40 footers, you know, you can't put these out on the open ocean. So, you know, an intracoastal, a bay, even a large lake, I think is appropriate. Rivers, of course, are a little bit narrower and sometimes not the best fit. So we do think there's quite a few places in Europe that are fantastic. Mykonos, Ibiza. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, how did I leave out Greece? My God. <laughs> yeah, I could probably name five places around Italy at a bare minimum that are amazing. The south of France within Cannes is amazing. Croatia, there's, there's just so many places that this works exceptionally well in. Then you get into Latin America, right? Punta del Este, Rio. Um, when you look at the world, there are so many bodies of water that this is appropriate for. That's why we think once the model is perfected in that first five years, that we can go through this massive expansion phase between years six and 10. Yeah, it's just a question of how many boats ARCUP can make. That's exactly right. And one of the beautiful things there is, uh, you know, we work exceptionally well with those guys. They're a fantastic team. I have nothing but the most amazing things to say about them. We are working on some things that will hopefully expand their production capacity and improve what they are ultimately building out. Now, that's the 40-footers that can't be out on open, open ocean. But in the future, there is the possibility we will look at 60-footers and 80-footers. And the 80-footers are definitely big enough and fully capable of being out on open ocean. And the thing you got to keep in mind is these vessels don't actually sit in water. They have spuds, they go down, they hit the seabed, they elevate the vessel somewhere between five to 10 feet fully out of water. Yeah, that'd have to be a stable. Yeah, you can't just be on a boat the entire time trying to conduct business or party and lose your lunch. You you don't want to be at a membership club where everybody's losing their lunch. Bad Bad PR move. That would be not a membership club for long. So, you know, when we look at bodies of water that are open ocean facing, Fast forward three, four, five years, 80 footers, instead of having four 40 footers that are in a diamond configuration, imagine one 80 footer or two 80 footers with three or four 40 footers that are protected by those 80 footers more on the coastal side. And then you can disconnect one of these boats, go out for a sail, come back and reconnect it um, because they're modular and you have that flexibility. So we think we're, we're super excited about that flexibility and, you know, working hand in hand with ARCUP, I think is going to bring us those vessels sooner so that we can expand what we do and where we can go. So here's the question, though. So you talk about the Coast Guard. What was the most surprising thing the Coast Guard said you were able to do and what they said you couldn't do to the point where you're thinking, well, I'll get an 80 foot boat and then head out to international waters? Well, where laws well, don't apply. I don't, I don't think we want to head out to international water. Um, <laughs> if we were and talking, are about you worried about piracy at all? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Uh, I think we have a duty to protect our members. Yeah. Um, this is a marine operation, and you know you have to take safety to extreme, you know, levels. And I think going out on open ocean, the idea of you know twenty thirty people getting on our boats and cruising out to Bimini is probably not something we would entertain. I think the thing that we've thought we can do that this was not a coast what Coast Guard told us, this is just what we've read, mm. is that you know you are allowed to be on open water as long as you are not in somebody's private property. And by private property, I mean submerged land, meaning somebody owns that area of water. This is not an area we have explored to that level of depth because we don't anticipate that this is going to be our model um, because we will either be docked in partnership with some kind of a land-based partner, whether that's a hotel, a restaurant, or a bar that has a dock and we can be at that dock. And you will be able to walk out on the dock, get onto the club, hang out, eat, drink, walk off. Or we are out on open water, whether that's publicly held land by the state of Florida or privately held land by somebody who happens to have a large enough area for us to fit into. But when we first heard that you can just be out on open water, I was in disbelief. How could this be allowed that I can just be out there? And you can be out there. You just can't be stationed somewhere permanently. 
And the question is, what is permanent? Is it 12 hours? Is it 24 hours? Is it three days? So could we do this out on open water and just move around every two, three days? We believe we can. Do we have to move at least once a week in all likelihood? Yes. Um, but we are currently looking at a space that is privately held, which will mean that we do not have to move. Um, and that's the beauty of it. So that's the one thing that I said, God, I can't believe that this is allowed, but great. You know, maritime laws are, um, you know, they're very stringent in many ways, but they allow the flexibility to let the boating community get out and do what they want to do without always be worried about where can I go? What do I have to do? So that's the beauty of it. And Co Coast Guard, Coast Guard is a great organization. They're not looking to make your life hell. They're looking to make sure that everybody is first and foremost safe and operates within the confines of the law and you know the regulatory framework. And if you do that, they're great. You want to have drinks on your boat and it's allowed, have a good time. But if they see you doing something that's you know, puts you or other people at risk, they're going to hammer down on you and as, as they should. Well, that's encouraging to learn that you have a partner in effect that is first and foremost out to preserve safety and therefore preserve the viability of your business because you really couldn't function well without their help. Let's talk about the business itself too. I, I just keep thinking that hospitality, that can be a challenged margin. Uh, watercraft is notoriously a tiny margin. It's common practice. People say, you know, don't buy a boat, make a friend with a guy who has a boat. When you first address the idea of creating this waterbound Xanadu, what kind of margins were you expecting and what kind of stresses do you see on those margins? Well, when we first started planning it, we didn't know what those margins were going to be. So we had to do a lot of research to see what we thought would work. Um, the first and foremost thing that is going to determine your margin is your revenue, right? And we had to figure out what's the capacity of the club? What do we think is the correct annual membership fee? And where does that put our top line? I have always been of the mindset that when you're trying to build a venture scale type business, it is not a race to the bottom, which means minimizing your expenses. It's a race to the top, which means expanding your top line. And that doesn't mean I'm going to go out and blow a lot of money, but it really means you got to look at your top line as a starting point. So luckily, I'm a financial modeler by background, right? So all I do is live in spreadsheets and model yeah. capital. So Pivot for me, this is like, forever. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's very few things in life that make me as happy as sitting somewhere and having a laptop and just being in Excel. So uh, you and me both, I love Excel. Yeah, and what an asset. Yeah, it's, it's the amazing. best thing ever made. Yeah, but you got to make sure you don't bullshit yourself in Excel, right? Because you can put up any kind of projection, it'll look pretty. But, you know, you got to make sure that you are being real world and, again, have contingencies in place. When we modeled this thing out, we started to see the numbers and they looked almost too good to be true. We did a little bit of research where we needed to noodle in and fix um, our projections. And, you know, we got a lot of information by looking at Soho House. Soho House happens to be, or their parent company, MCG, happens to be publicly traded. So we had a lot of information on where their revenue is coming from, and we were able to cross-check our numbers against them. We looked at it, we're like, oh my God, we're not crazy. This is very similar. So Really? Even though it's even though it, you have boats on the water, you think the two uh, paradigms are comparable? Yeah. And, and the interesting thing there is Soho House has about 30 locations around the world. They are growing at an exponential clip. I think they're adding seven or eight locations this year, right? A huge wait list. They're going to expand like crazy. Now, Soho House on a per location basis, when the IPO, now I can't say that for today, but when the IPO, each location imputes about $130 million of value. Two thirds is food and beverage sales. One third is membership dues. Each location for Soho House is about, on average, 3,000 members when you do the math on global members divided by clubs. Now, Arc House is about 360 members per location. So we are more or less one-ninth the size of a Soho House location. We actually drive two-thirds of our revenue from members and guest passes because we charge guest pass fees, whereas Soho House does not. And then we do. You should kind of have to, right? That's a real. You have to make up the shortfall somehow. You have to, uh, and also our member, uh, our annual dues are much higher than Soho House's. So full price is a full price annual membership is ten thousand dollars, where Soho House is 
it's about $2,700 or $2,800. So we're about four times the cost of Soho. And how much tinkering did you have to do with that price point to, to find the sweet spot? A lot of it was really just talking to people. You know, because we had a previous club that has a membership club in Miami, we knew what Miami wants at least. And then we just started asking people who are in the membership club space who said, is 5,000 too low? They said, yes, it's definitely too low. Is 20,000 too high? And as we kind of hammered in on that $10,000 range, that's what we thought the market bears. And again, it's not just what the market bears. It's a question of, is it sellable and does it make your overall business model work? So we started doing pre-sale memberships and the pre-sale memberships took off. Uh, we are now at 40% of our total capacity has already been pre-sold. This is the first time I'm saying this publicly. So I'm just going to say it now. Our year one capacity might be half of what we do. So instead of 360 members, we may only allow 180 members. And that's because we want to make sure that the experience is great and you can never oversell memberships and go backwards. But what we can do is start with 180 members and expand upwards. And if we say, okay, great, we have room to go to 270 members and then to 360, we'll do that. But if year one is only 180 members, you know, we're about 70%, almost 80% of the way already sold through on our year one memberships. Yeah. And you can kind of build a level of exclusivity as well. You can exactly. lower your supply and increase yeah. your demand, start that wait list. So Get people buzzing about it. There. Sure. Yeah. Consumer demand is there. We have product market fit, uh, at least in pre-sales, right? The interesting thing will be to see what percentage of pre-sales actually converts to full members. Uh, now, granted, they've put down a substantial deposit. So we do believe that the conversion rate is going to be somewhere between 80 to 90%. So going back to the um, the revenues, when we do the math, we see that each location for us will also impute, we believe, about $120 million per location of enterprise value, whereas Soho House is about $135 million. So great, we're in the ballpark, right? We just derive our revenues in a different way than they do. The lifetime value on a per member basis is much higher for us than it is for them. And how do you balance when you talk about revenue? I'm thinking also of like ballparks or arenas and things. You've got individual memberships, individual tickets, and you've got luxury suites. And there's a balance between individual memberships and corporate memberships, especially if a corporation wants to rent out the whole rig for a private event. How much give and take have you uh, undertaken in order to find that balance between revenue sources, given that corporate expense accounts are a much deeper vein to mine? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the first and foremost thing for us is to realize that we are a community. Ultimately, four boats, four yachts attached together is nothing unless you have that community. And we can't let a company come in and take over the boats and displace that community. So I'll tell you how our membership works and how it's set up. And you'll see that we do not allow a corporation to come in um, and take over and displace that community for our own economic benefit. Oh, okay. That's good to know. So sure. We have three membership types, a single membership, right? So if I, Sam Perovi, wanted to get a membership just for myself, great. That's one membership. I can get a membership with my spouse, which is the same price. It's just two of us now. Each membership gets 30 hours of use per month. So if me and my wife are splitting a membership, then I may use 20 hours of it. She may use 10. Who knows? Then there's the corporate membership. And this is a very limited membership. We're only doing a limited amount of these. A corporate membership is effectively two memberships. It's double the amount of hours, so 60 hours per month. It's double the price, same as buying two memberships. But instead of having one or two names on it, you can use it for four people. So if I was a small sales team and I wanted four of my salespeople to have access to these 60 hours a month, I would be buying a corporate membership. Now, that's not intended for Sony to come in and you know throw its weight around. It's more of like, oh, there's a real estate team or a sports agent. Every member at our house, no matter who you are, how rich you are, how poor you are, you get the same exact thing. There is literally no difference. And we, as the club uh, owners, we do not get to bring in a event and say, hey guys, club's closed on Tuesday because it's a private event. With that being said, a member can say, I want to host my birthday party here. Is there room for me to bring 10 or 15 people on Saturday from noon till four? And we would do that. It would use their hours or they could purchase guest passes. I was going to say, yeah, you'd have to do that on a case-by-case -case basis and you'd have exactly. to uh, rely on guest passes. 
yeah, we never close the club, but we would say maybe you can book out the top deck of boat number three or both top and bottom decks of boat number three, but the rest of the club would have to be available for our members to make sure that they have access. So basically all you're doing is just coordinating off an area for them. And that's how we do events. So could Drake come and say he wants to have a concert at our house and close a club? He could say that we're not going to do it, but he can come through a member and say, we want to have a small show on boat number three and four, boat number one and two will be available to the rest of your club. And great, because now that show is available to the rest of the club. And now you've now that you mentioned it, Toronto, that's a great place to expand to. Some cold weather issues there, but yeah. <laughs> well, not all the time, but yeah, I guess you'd have to be, what must the, the weather patterns be to have a year-round presence in a city? And would you consider having a seasonal presence in Toronto or Chicago or Seattle or something? Clearly yeah. the demand would be there if the numbers worked out on your end. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at all the locations I mentioned, most of those are warm weather cities, really with the exception of New York City and maybe Paris in the winter, right? Yeah. So the question is what happens then? This is what highlights ARCUP's phenomenal vessels, because in New York City, that can really be a club from April through October, maybe November. What we will actually do in New York City is disconnect the four boats, cruise down the East Coast, and almost do a mini pop-up tour, DC for a week, Baltimore for a week, Virginia, all the way down until you get to South Carolina, and possibly even Northern Florida, right out the winter there, cruise back up the East Coast, reconnect for the spring. And then what you can also do in New York City is in the summer, when a lot of our members are going out to the beaches on, in the Hamptons, can leave two vessels in New York City, send two of them out to the Hamptons, let them bop around the harbors and the capes, whether it's Shelter Island, Montauk, Sag Harbor. Our members can access the club there and then, you know, past Labor Day, come back, reconnect the boats for the fall. And, you know, that modular aspect of these boats gives us a tremendous amount of flexibility. Yeah, so you could have like a migration cruise twice a year. That's exactly right. As long as that migration is happening in a protected body of water. And thankfully, the East Coast Coast has the intracoastal. Right, exactly. And, you know, I don't know if the Erie Canal will help you or (laughs) (laughs) St. Lawrence Riverway or whatever. And I, I just wrote, I don't know, do you have a couple minutes for me to share one more thing? Sure, yeah, lay it on me. This is, we think, possibly the coolest part of the whole club. Um, Okay, we've buried the lead. Now we're an hour in, and he's going to tell us the coolest (laughs) part. You know, when we were first thinking about this, anytime you're going to put vessels in the water, you know, you're going to have a net negative impact. And we really wanted to make sure that we didn't have a net negative impact. And we kept scratching our heads thinking, what can we do to add back to the local community, to the waterways, et cetera. And we got lucky because this gentleman by the name of Dan Kleinman came to us. He runs an organization in Miami called Seaworthy Collective. So Seaworthy Collective is an incubator of marine biology regeneration projects. So they incubate startups that not just conserve what's happening in the waterways, but actually serve to regenerate them and go backwards in that improvement. And we were like, okay, wonderful. We'd love to hear more. How can we help? And he said, well, look, a lot of the startups we work with, they use underwater drones. And these underwater drones need a place to dock, charge, and in many cases, upload their data. We can't dock to regular boats because they're V-shaped hulls. We are looking for something larger platform on water that we can dock and charge from. And I mean, Natalie and I needed literally a split second to just look at each other and like wink and be like, yes, absolutely, you can do it. Because we knew what he was asking. And the idea was, can we use the bottom side of Arc House for this whole fleet of drones from a variety of marine biology startups to go out and measure the water's toxicity, salinity, oxygen levels, go out and do trash collection, go out and do mangrove restoration. And when we heard that, it was mind blowing to us that this cool party platform that we're going to build out on water could be a hub for marine biology startups under it. And we've made a solid amount of plans and that's going to get slow leaked and come out as we go. But we have since announced a whole project called Party Up Top Research on Bottom. Um, so for those that are fans <laughs> of mullets, you'll get that. <laughs> and <laughs> We're so excited about this project because what that literally means is Miami's members of this club are going to know that while they're having a great time, they're effectively helping fund improving 
Biscayne Bay directly below their feet, and it's their dollars that are helping to do it. If anybody thinks that they have some involvement here and want to partner with us or help us do that in any way, please do reach out because party up top, research on bottom, trademark Monday soon, I hope. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be the coolest thing, you know, to hit the water. <laughs> that is absolutely, as advertised, the coolest part of the conversation. I'm really glad we made time for that. I didn't want people to forget that these things, these are electric. I mean, how do you charge them? How long does it take to make them ready? Since they're mostly stationary, are they charging all the time? Or they're charging I- all the time. Each vessel generates about 12 kilowatts of electricity. We generate about 50 kilowatts throughout the day at peak times, of course, a little bit less in the mornings and in the evenings. That's actually more electricity than we need. Now, if there is excess electricity, the beauty of it is those drones below us will be able to charge fully free. And that would be amazing. And I'm very glad you made time for us here on the Successfully Funded Podcast. I want to see where it goes, both literally and figuratively. And for people, investors, customers, anyone interested, where could we find you online to learn more about your your company and your crowdfund and whatever else is going on? Yeah, well, there's two places to find us at the moment. The one place you can always get us is at our website, uh, which is arkhouse.miami. If you're interested in applying for a membership, you just go to the website, learn about it. Uh, you can apply right there on the website with a deposit application and deposit. We will review all the applications starting in October, start assigning memberships in November or December and converting them to full memberships around then. You know, right now we are in the middle of a, uh, a capital raise and we're doing it in two parts. One of them is a equity crowdfund raise on WeFunder. So you would just go to wefunder.com forward slash archouse. And if you're interested in a larger check, 25K or above, I would just say that you contact us directly first. Obviously, we'll have for a larger check, we're going to have a lot more discussion and uh, providing you the comfort that this is uh, achievable, legitimate, and we are good people, which we are. <laughs> um, so wefunder.com forward slash archouse. Uh, otherwise, go to the website to apply or to just contact us about anything else. I really appreciate the time, Sam. And uh, for those of you, uh, I have been talking to the, uh, the the nice guy and very phonetically named Sam Payrovi, the founder and CEO of Arkhouse. And he is basically creating floating ships that are going to save us when the icebergs all melt. I'm really glad I had the chance to talk to you and I wish you all the best of luck. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. I have been Doug French and uh, thank you very much for listening. We will see you next time with another discussion about party in the front and business in the rear or (laughs) some variety thereof. All the best, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.